Welcome you to the program. As our program continues, it's Talk of the Town on 1290 CJBK. I'm Jim Chapman, and this being Wednesday, it's Left, Right, and Center with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. And Hi, welcome Jim. to both of you. Hello. Uh, there is an issue, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this program, let me give you just a quick, a quick rundown on how it works. Uh, nominally, Bob, Jeff, and I are uh, occupy different space, different places, different spaces on the political spectrum. Uh, for the sake of discussion, we put Jeff on the left, Bob's on the right, and I'm somewhere in the center. In fact, uh, we don't always stay there. We do tend to to move around, which I think is the is what is healthy about the kind of discussions we have. Nobody's locked into, uh, and that's why our our two guests uh, are our two guests on this segment because nobody's locked into. Uh, into a particular mindset, we tend to, we try to look at the issue as responsibly and as rationally uh, as we can, and as logically from, from as many different directions as we can get. Um, that's why we do it. What we do is to take a look at uh, an issue of the day and try to bring our various thoughts to bear on it. I want to ask you fellas what you think about what's happening in uh, Ottawa, in Quebec, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the restrictions on the construction workers. I don't want to get into it in, in great detail, but the bottom line is that Quebec has, for some years, made it very difficult for Ontario construction people to go into the province and work there. Ontario has now responded in kind and saying, okay, if that's what you're going to do, then uh, we're going to turn the tables on you. We're going to make it tough for you to come into Ontario and work. In, inside Quebec, there's a, there's a subgroup a uh, very substantial subgroup of non-unionized workers who are ticked off not only at Harris for, for what he's doing, but also at Premier Bouchard for allowing this to happen in the first place and for putting restrictions on non-unionized construction workers, that they are effectively locked out of a lot of jobs within the province. Now, I'm kind of guessing that I have an idea where you gentlemen stand on this issue of organized labor, although I might be wrong, but... Uh, uh, let me put this to either or both of you. Do you see an easy solution for this other than to do away with any restrictions whatsoever? And I think I know what he'll say, but maybe he'll surprise me. Let's ask Bob first. What, what do you think I'll say? I think that you would probably say that we'd all be better off if there were no restrictions at all on the labor pool. True, but with, re with regard to this particular situation, what, what do you think I would say with regard to the current dilemma. I'm not sure. As and to what Ontario should do, since I can't, okay. can't really decide for Quebec. Okay, and since I have you here, there's no reason for me to speculate. I can ask you, what do you think? Well, I believe in unilateral free trade, even if the other country, and, and I'm going to use the word other country, because if Quebec can do this and Ontario can do this, then that's all the evidence we need that we live in separate countries. Mm -hmm. um, so, even if the other country doesn't want to do trade with you, because it's at their disadvantage, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing that through the subgroups in Quebec who are complaining for the, you know, again, the favored labor group, mm -hmm. unionized labor. So it, there, there's a no-win situation wherever you have trade barriers. And um, Bouchard is making a tremendous mistake for the well-being, economic well-being of Quebec by doing the same thing. You have to have a free flow of labor, a free f flow of capital, and of people, individuals in order to have a viable economy. Now, but here, here, to come back to Harris again, it, you're saying he shouldn't be responding? He should just unilaterally say, okay, well, we're open to you, but you're not open to us? Well, yeah, that's what he should do. That would be the morally proper thing to do, but I don't think that's what he would 
be most inclined to do politically mm -hmm. because I think the average person out there feels more vindictive and more in a mood to get revenge on this kind of obviously unjust action, which how, I'm not going to argue with. But how else, do you I mean, how else do you oppose injustice? I don't understand. Not by, not by duplicating it. Well, how else do you put pressure on it? If, you, if, if, I'm gonna, if I punch you in the nose repeatedly... If we put trade no, no, barriers no, 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 on, suppose no. London, the city of London put trade barriers around itself yeah. and wouldn't let anyone in London go out or anyone else come in, you think that's going to help Londoners? That's not going to help us at all. In fact, the people outside of London wouldn't care one way or the other. And they would, they probably want to... We're talking about a jurisdiction a lot bigger than London, and we're talking about a jurisdiction wherein jobs are being taken away from people who pay taxes in this province uh, by people who pay taxes in another province. But our guys can't go into their province and work. That, that, th this is, I'm a Well, that's a jurisdictional problem if you're talking, worried about the taxes. I don't think, well, it's just, I don't just think we want to structure you are. our economy on our tax base. We want to structure our tax base on our, on our economy. Yeah, but it, is, it, it, it kind of defines where you are. I think this is the beef with the, the, many of the Ontario workers, is that guys can come into Ontario and take jobs away from us, but we can't go in and comp not necessarily take jobs away. They can come in and compete for our jobs, but we can't go and compete for jobs in Quebec. Sure, that's true, and that's unfair as far as our people going to Quebec. But even so, repeating the mistake by, by not allowing their people to come here doesn't help Ontario either. Why not? That's, well, because the larger your labor, labor pool, the lower prices everyone can enjoy around, around the whole economy. Yeah, but wait, do we want so, prices to go as low as they possibly can? I mean, why don't we just... Doesn't everyone? Don't, when you walk into a store, don't you want to see the, the best worker. deal for the best price? Not if you're the worker. You don't want the prices going, going that low if it's, if it's impacting your, uh, your well, salary. sure, that's a countervailing force in the economy, and it'll always be there, and there's nothing wrong with it as long as it's not government-supported. Okay. Jeffrey, uh, from your perspective, perhaps a little bit more to the left, uh, uh, I don't know if there's any winners or losers here. Jeff's, or, uh, Bob's contention is that Ontario shouldn't compound the felony by uh, by reacting in the way that Quebec has. Is that a reasonable assumption? Um, well, I think that uh, this is sort of the ongoing debate uh, throughout uh, at least the last couple of centuries, and that is tariff protection for your own uh, for your own uh, industries. And my understanding, and uh, my sort of simple-minded economics. Um, it was that the only rationale really for tariffs would be to to um, foster a, a sort of a beginning industry. If you've got an industry that uh, needs some protecting for a little while to get it up and running, that's one thing. So you may impose some tariffs to give them um, sort of a little incubator to get themselves up to the point where they can compete against everybody else. But where it becomes a permanent thing, I think that that's generally a bad thing. And uh, we've sort of seen that at various times over the years where uh, you have a, a particular industry that's protected by tariffs that is inefficient, that's allowed allowed to, to not have to compete in the real world. And generally, I, I would agree with Bob, that's not a good thing. Then the question is, what do you do? Uh, because it's almost like a game of chicken that uh, one jurisdiction feels that they can take advantage by imposing tariffs uh, and then not reciprocating. Um, we've seen that with Japan, for instance, who have been, had very effective tariffs since World War II, where uh, I've read that their auto industry was basically created by mm -hmm. uh, strong tariffs. Yeah. And it's still the case that it's extremely difficult to import into Japan um, for a variety of reasons. They make it very difficult. I remember there was a thing about how their cars had to, couldn't be more than a particular width and uh, that American cars were slightly wider and mm -hmm. couldn't come in. Uh, so they seem to want to take advantage of it both ways. The question is, do you buy into that then and retaliate? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know really what the alternative is. I would think that in the Canada, in the Quebec, Ontario situation, Ontario is a bigger province, uh, a more prosperous province. Probably we're better off sort of... Uh, um, we're going to have more construction jobs. There's more going on in, in Ontario. In a way, we don't need 
tariff protection for our own purposes, um, but as a way of, of retaliating, I, I guess that's fair game. The thing that really surprises me is that there are uh, barriers between provinces at all, um, and I wonder, and I, I remember reading something about uh, BC wines, for instance, and why I didn't see more of them around for years and years. You get all kinds of California wines, mm -hmm. but not BC. And there, you find out there's all, all these interprovincial regulations. Mm -hmm. In many ways, it's much easier to do business north-south than it, east and west. It's, it's really true. funny. I just mm -hmm. heard an ad on, on some radio station, I won't say which one, but uh, for some kind of beer that was being sold in Ontario, and they said, imported from Nova Scotia. Yes. And I'm thinking, <laughs> imported? <Yeah. laughs> Who wrote that ad? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and that just right. tells you what the problem with Canada is. Canada's biggest single problem as a nation in order to stay together and to stay sovereign is the issue of free trade within our borders. Uh, the fact that we don't have it is astounding. Um, it just speaks to the constant self-centeredness of every little local group in terms of how it sees its interests mm -hmm. as above everyone else's in the country. Mm -hmm. And this is the tendency that I think that every country has to struggle to avoid. I think the more tariffs and barriers you put between people, that's the ultimate prescription for war. You're going to get that, it's going to boil down to that one day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to repeat the mistake, and if, if, if Bouchard wants to put all the tariffs on he wants, he can go ahead. But we should not in Ontario do that. And in fact, we should have a federal government that doesn't even permit that to happen. Okay, I want to take the next step in what's unraveling, or what's unfolding. They're unraveling, too. The second time we made that slip today, but it fits this time. We are now seeing violence on those. In fact, we have almost from the beginning seen violence in these protests. We see individuals who feel, feel very strongly that their livelihoods are at stake. Um, they are protesting, in this case, at, a, against two governments, uh, some of them. Um, tempers flare. People become incensed. Violence ensues. People are arrested. Some people are arrested. Many people are just told to shape up and go home, as often happens in labor confrontations. I wrote uh, an article in the Free Press over the weekend here about uh, the need for us to respect the law when it comes to protests, that we have every right and indeed a duty to speak out against things we don't like, but when we cross that legal line, um, that we become criminals, not protesters, and should be treated as such. And I must say, I've had a number of people uh, take me to task a bit on that, saying, no, no, there are some things where it is incumbent upon you to ignore the law in order to seek the greater good. And I want to ask Jeffrey about that. Is, is it unreasonable, was it unreasonable for me to suggest that when your protest turns violent, that uh, it is no longer effectively a protest, it's a criminal act? Well, I guess I would distinguish between uh, between a criminal act and, and violence per se. I would say that violence per se is never appropriate. Um, sometimes, though, things may be criminalized because you've got a government who, who want to uh, uh, push uh, negotiations in one direction or the other. For instance, they can outlaw... Um, uh, a strike. They can outlaw picketing, they can give injunctions and all those kinds of things. They criminalize activity that the day before was not criminal and isn't in and of itself uh, a violent thing. It doesn't offend any commandments or any greater law. Yes. So I would distinguish between those things. And if somebody breaks a, an injunction over a picket line, for instance, if the, if the injunction shouldn't have been granted in the first place, I would say that that's not always uh, an inappropriate thing. But the idea of violence, I guess, uh, I think by and large in Canada, we actually don't have really that strong a tradition of violence. We've seen much more violence when it comes to the um, the protests we've had recently about strife outside of Canada mm -hmm. than we have for uh, for any of, of the, the kinds of uh, protests that certainly I've seen, uh, anti-poverty protests, uh, protests against Mike Harris, protests for uh, union things. But the argument, Usually, the we don't argument, get into fire bombs. We no, don't get into any of that. No, but the stuff. argument can be made particularly with union uh, issues in, in Ontario. 
that the authorities have traditionally, at least from an observer's point of view, I don't know what the union people think of it, the authorities have traditionally been very lenient about, about violence and problems on picket lines. I mean, we see, for example, the, you know, the fires on the picket lines, which are they're blatantly illegal. You know, if you, you put a, 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 a 40-gallon drum at the side, at front of your house and set a fire in it, you'd get a ticket. They well, don't take well, it. Well, that's why just, we just have the violence well, on the, the lines, because it's tolerated by the law. It's well, surely having a fire is not violent. No, 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 no but I'm just, no, just the point. The, the point is that, that exceptions in, in, in labor situations in Ontario, exceptions are made, perhaps rightly, I don't know, but exceptions are certainly made. There are certain laws you can break with impunity. They may be small laws, but you can break them with impunity in a labor setting. Well, that's where you get into, the, to me, the difference between law, uh, laws that are based on some broader law, like, for instance, it shouldn't be violent. Uh, versus a law that's a, a more of a regulatory law designed to prevent a, a particular negotiation from, from coming to its mm -hmm. sort of logical end. If, if the government is trying to sort of tip the balance one way or another, they legislate PSAC workers back to strike, for instance, or back to work. Uh, those kinds of things, I think, are, are an unfair tilting of the field. And it's not clear to me that the instant a government passes a, a law or a, a municipal bylaw or whatever, or there's court injunction granted, that behavior that was perfectly legal and, uh, and nobody had a problem with legitimate 10 minutes before is mm -hmm. suddenly immoral or, or something you shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. To me, you, you, weigh the, you weigh that. As no, far I mean, as fires on the picket line, boy, fires have saved me more than once because you're out there in the picket line freezing your butt. You light a fire to keep warm. And I remember, that's your uh, choice, isn't it? If you want to go on strike, I mean, that's your choice. Well, it's also a choice to have a fire. And, and by the way, fires, it's not so clear to me what the rules are in London as far as having an open fire. All kinds of people mm -hmm. have fire pits. But as far as whether you should ever have a fire on a picket line to keep your hands warm, I don't see that as being a big deal. And, and I wouldn't say that the union leaders are being lax if they, if they allow people to have such fires. No, I so do the police. And, and I wasn't, well, that, well, that was my point. The police allow it even though you and I would not be allowed to do it. And I'm not saying it's wrong because I if, think you're, would be. if you're, well, I don't, I don't believe you will. Yeah, I know lots of people who do in London. Well, uh, <laughs> let, let, let me come back to the example. You get a 40-gallon drum, fill it with uh, kindling, and set it on fire on your front boulevard. See how long it takes for the cops to come around. Yeah. Or, the, or the fire department. Yeah, but on the other hand, you've got all kinds of people who have open fires in their backyards. They sit around and roast marshmallows in the summertime. You're not supposed to do that either. Well, to me, it's a question again, though, that all laws are not created the same. buried or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. not as simple as you can't do it. But, yeah. but anyway, to me, what I'm trying to illustrate is that that's, that's a, a little thing. And I realize there's a theory, that the broken window, if you let the little things go, then big things happen. Mm -hmm. I would say that the fact that somebody has a fire uh, at a picket line to keep their hands warm does not lead them to go punching people no, sure. in the face. Yeah, what do you think about them. the big thing? What do you think about the police treating the violence on the picket line differently than they would treat you or I? Well, again, I don't think they do, and I think that uh, we're, I think there's a lot more violence in our society than we're used to, and I think this comes up in the knifings, for instance, in the, in the bar fights downtown. Uh, what, what I hear coming out of that is that these are a result of the fights, which they've always had. There's always fights going on all the time, I and generally police don't lay yeah, charges, yeah, even yeah. though everyone is an assault. You just switch subjects. That's a whole different kind of violence. You know, Jim's talking about the kind of violence where people are in a in some great belief, believing that they're doing this for the greater good, that they're mm -hmm. breaking a law. The guy downtown who's knifing somebody is not doing it for any noble reasons and isn't even making any pretense of such. But the people who are on picket lines and who think they're, they're, they're making a sacrifice and taking a risk breaking the law, which, by the way, is something I advocate. I mean, if, if you believe that a law is wrong, the only way to change it is to break it. That's, that, there's a principle there. But underlying that principle is not simply a, a vague term like the greater good. 
you have to be violating someone's individual rights in order to justify anything you do against the government. But I'm saying and I don't here think you, you can ever justify an assault in the basis, on the basis that it's for greater good. I don't think I, that I agree. I, I, I agree. But, but you, you can justify the use of violence defensively for, to defend the self, the individual, and his property. Well, what about the guy on the picket line up there? And I believe that they busted six of them yesterday, I think was the number, and probably some more today. Um, what about the guy who, who is incensed? He's having trouble finding enough work. He's got a family to feed. He believes this is wrong. He believes he has a right to kind of disrupt society. He wants to draw attention to the problems. Say, Look, folks, you've got you've to pay attention here. Well, his, his problem is if he believes that, then he believes he's better than the other guy. And he's, he's got some right that the other person in society doesn't. And that just doesn't wash with anybody. But to me, it's a matter of getting to the bottom of it, and, and I actually uh, occasionally teach a course on civil disobedience uh, and sort of what, what you can do and what you can't do and so on. And sort of, I think the thing that everybody advocates on both sides is video cameras have been wonderful, and cameras are good things to have around. Because, again, the fact that someone has been arrested at a picket line doesn't tell me that much. If they're arrested because they punched a, a, a cop, then mm -hmm. they should be charged, and they should be convicted, and they should be sentenced. Well, you suggest that they were arrested because they were sitting there. Reason doing what nothing. What if they felt they had a good reason to punch the I don't cop. think there is a good reason. Unless, unless again, a self-defense is the only one that I can well, think of. Uh, but, uh, I know one protester in Vancouver who did that something similar to a police officer because a police officer was beating up his employees. Well, then it becomes a question of whether self-defense can ever extend to someone else. And, and I, I suppose theoretically in law that if someone else is being beaten without any justification, uh, you are entitled as a citizen to intervene. If a cop is acting illegally, then you are entitled to take reasonable steps oh, to I try to stop that legally. illegal act. <laughs> well, but again, that's but where there it was a protest if, going if on, trying, you see, trying to change the law. These, you know, and the thing is that life is often messy. That's why I talk about bar fights, that uh, if the cops charged everybody who, who ever touched somebody else, because legally those are all assaults, you know, the courts would be ten times more jammed than they are right now. They don't. They tend not to lay charges at bar fights. They don't lay charges at hockey games. Um, there are these things that happen. And, and picket lines are messy places. They're places where lots is going on. Uh, lots is going on here, too, this morning on Left, Right, and Center with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. The lines are open. If you'd care to join our conversation, if you've got a question or a comment, we'd like to hear from you. Star 1290 is the Cantel number, and that's a free call for you Cantel customers. 643-1290 for everybody else. And we'll be back with more Left, Right, and Center on 1290 CJBK. Left, Right, and Center with Schlemmer and Metz, and Bill joins us on the line. Hi, Bill. Hello. Yes, sir. Uh... This uh, skirmish you're having down in Quebec, in Quebec in the border there. Yeah. Uh, I think I don't think uh, I don't like uh, Harris mm -hmm. as a premier. Yes. But I certainly think he's doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. They uh, uh, they have uh, a lot of uh, different outfits down there that uh, are uh, uh, what do you call it um, discrimination. Yes. And uh, I know at one time, I don't know how it is now, but I know at one time uh, we had a truck driver that lives, uh, drove, drove transport, and uh, he would get, take his uh, van down to uh, Quebec border, and he would have to unhook un his trailer, yeah. and then uh, they would take it from there, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, what they're doing in, in uh, the, the fellows in Ontario, if they can't work in, uh, in, in Quebec, then it's reverse. Now Bob says that two wrongs don't make a right, though. That's fine. But the whole thing is, Bill, free Bill. trade, and I always said it when they first started nattering about this, if you can't have free trade in your own country, where's it going to start? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but then again, aren't you saying that you support Harris putting a barrier in place? I, if, he, if they can't uh, come across as a two-way street. Now, you want, you want to know why? Okay, I've already made a point in principle why I'm opposed to it. Now, here's, here's how economically what happens. If, for example, Quebecers can come to Ontario and work here, that increases our labor pool and drives general prices down. In Quebec, it's the other way around. If only Quebecers can work in Quebec and Ontarians can't go over there, they have a, a, a smaller labor pool and their prices will rise and that will not make it a nice place for business to want to go and set up. Business is going to come to Ontario instead of to Quebec knowing that Ontario is going to have a larger labor pool to, to choose from. So we don't win by doing this and in fact all we do is solidify each side's uh, entrenchment until eventually we're going to be throwing more than insults at each other. Okay, case in point. If Quebec separates, what happens? Well, nothing. I bet nothing. you Quebec will go to, to a lot more free trade than it practices you, no, now. No, no, what I'm saying, do you think that they'll, they will allow the uh, Canadians or the, with, uh, the uh, Ontario uh, people to go into Quebec? I couldn't tell you that. No, well, that's the problem. But it doesn't matter. It's still the same situation as now, isn't it? doesn't that's make right. any difference. That's They're right. already a separate I still country. I think that he's, go he's going about it the right way. If they, if they don't want to capitulate, then that's too bad. All right, Bill, thanks for your call today. Okay. Good to hear from you. Bye. The, uh, I'm, I'm a little confused here, Bob. I need your help sure. on this. The, the comment you made that the larger the labor pool... Supply and demand. The lower the, lower the prices get. Well, the lower the, lower the wages will get, for sure. But we have, Potentially. No, we have no guarantee that the prices will go down. Isn't that, isn't that where a lot of people have trouble with, with, with that kind of view of economics? Prices and, drop only when competition exists and you have a lot of, a lot of things to choose from. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's, there are natural ceilings to prices. You can have a monopoly on something but not charge above a certain amount because people can't afford to pay it. So that's, a, that's another natural thing in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. so Which price, goes back to your contention earlier that monopolies don't matter. Exactly. Okay. They, they can't really do anything, okay. um, especially not to force people to buy things that they can't afford. If you can't afford it, you can't buy it, and the guy hasn't got a customer, so it's not in his interest to put his pricing out of your reach. Okay. That's just silly. And, and again, here, what Bill just suggested is to, to, that two wrongs make a right. I disagree with that entirely. Um, I, I don't think that what Quebec is doing is, is right, but the way that to, sh to prove it to them is not by doing the same thing. In fact, they probably would like it if we put more barriers on on our side, too. It feeds their cause. All right, let's go back to the phones where Ron's waiting. Hi, Ron. Good morning. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, I'd just like to make a point. I don't want to argue. But it, I think if you start here, I think what you're doing is causing a big snowball effect. What about franchising where the... Uh, original or head offices in Quebec, and then they have outlets in Ontario or any other province. Yeah. What happens there? Well, I don't know as anything's going to happen. Right now they're talking about the construction industry. Yeah, that, that's what I mean. It's gonna, I think it's going to be a snowball effect. And, you know, that's what it's going to end up being in the end. Well, my question would be, who, who would push it? I mean, obviously, the, uh, the Quebec government is in a bit of a spot here with this because it's a long-standing practice of theirs. But I would tend to think there are probably more franchise outlets inside of Quebec with headquarters outside than the other way around. 
So uh, they, they, I don't think there's any difference which way it is. I think it's it. I think it's going to snowball and and it's going to end up being that way. Mm-hmm. I think my only if 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 I want to maybe take it a little further, I think the only thing that maybe should happen about this is that uh, the federal government should become involved. Oh, whatever for. It's all part of Canada, is it not? Oh, yeah, but, yeah, I'll tell you right now, the federal government will not become involved because the provinces, this is one of the great great bones of contention in federal-provincial relationships for years. The provinces do not want the feds to to open their borders. The provinces want to be able to control that. They have all said repeatedly at First Minister's conferences that we're working towards this. We all recognize this is what we want to do, totally open borders, but don't you feds dare get involved. I don't think you're going to see that happen, Ron. Then that's what I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm kind of on your side. I uh, don't think there should be any closed borders. I think they should be open, and they should. The Quebecers should be able to come here, and the Ontarians should be go. Should be able to go there. Thanks for your call, Ron. Thank you. Take care now. What about uh, what about this scenario? Let's say that Harris continues with his threats and and does essentially block the border for for construction back and forth. And let's say that Ron, what Ron is worried about starts to happen, that they start closing for more and more and more and more and more things between the two provinces. Does that not, would that not, I don't think it'll happen, here's why though, because I think that's going to play into the hands of the Federalists rather than the Separatists. The more isolated that province becomes, the more it has to stand on its own economically, and the more likely it is that Quebecers are going to recognize that Bouchard's been spinning them a pipe dream. Quebec is not an economically viable unit insofar as it's able to deliver the standard of living they have today. But at the same time, by putting trade barriers on itself, it's making itself all the less economically viable. Well, that's what I'm saying, you exactly. Know? So so you could just let them carry on and, and shoot themselves in the foot continually uh, and see how long that takes until their own people become fed up with it. If I was a Quebec businessman in the construction business, and I hear that my government is going to stop me from accessing my Ontario labor pool, that's going to drive the prices up for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be very happy, and I just might decide to go over to Ontario yeah. and create those jobs over there, and that's what I would probably be doing. And that's w- why Harris should not put a barrier okay. on because he's stopping that guy from coming over and bringing his jobs with but him. There's only one of you and there's a hundred people that work for your com- company and they're all happy at the protections because it keeps their raises or well they their, think they are keeps their wages they think high. they are but they're living in, in a pipe dream there i mean that's that's just an artificial price it's keeping them out of the marketplace you've heard the phrase you're priced yourself out of the market and that's literally what they do until nobody wants to associate with them anymore as long as there's another labor pool available and that's and why the non-union guys are raising such that's a right well it's interesting to know a bit of the history and, and why this came about in the first place and, and you know what political pressures were brought to bear because on the one hand, you talk about how well the it's construction... It's greed, Jeff. It's greed. I'm surprised you're not in there just saying it's <laughs> greed. It's greed. Everybody wants more for, well, for I, less. I just sit back with wide-eyed wonder and but learn about why, the world. Why, 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 <laughs> is, why, is it labor, why is it labor is never greedy? They're never greedy. They're such nice guys. Only the business people who have to, you know, be with their, you know react to the customer they're the guys that are greedy but but labor never said a word well <laughs> just that's, that's just, it's the omission of these words if this was a business thing we were talking about you would be talking about that's... bill gates and leveling well, the playing field and antitrust laws and all sorts of okay, stuff okay well, let me take a whack at that then uh, one of the things that occurs to me is that uh, you've got all kinds of jurisdictions competing with each other for for wealth however they perceive it whether it's by attracting business or whether it's by providing uh, closed uh, uh, 
uh, sources of labor or whatever it is one way or another that in a way this is this is a variation on what we've seen across Canada as well which is that you've got I remember McKenna when he was uh, the premier was accused of uh, of uh, uh, poaching business from other parts of Canada he got all kinds of mm -hmm. uh, call centers and mm -hmm. so on was going very aggressively into other provinces and saying why don't you guys all move to to uh, NB and we'll give you uh, big tax breaks and all that kind of stuff um, you know, I know that there's a big di dispute going on right now with um, Tobin in uh, Newfoundland about uh, the smelter. He wants uh, Inco, I think, to build a smelter out there as a, mm -hmm. as a corollary to allowing them to develop uh, uh, is it Boise Bay. I can't remember. Anyway, one of the big uh, deposits out there. Inco has said, no, we've got a perfectly good smelter in uh, Sudbury. We want to we use the Sudbury smelter. You know, again, you've got this interprovincial rivalry going on, and in a way, uh, it just comes back to a question of whether they, they compete with a carrot or a stick. And, uh, arguably, you could come back to uh, you open any business magazine, you see ads for Ontario, you know, come bring your business yeah. to Ontario, whatever. Well, Jeff, when, when it comes to raising children, you always said it was very important to use the, the carrot and not the stick. Do you not agree it should be the same in economics and international affairs? I'm not defending Bush. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, what I, want, I don't what know. comes down to. I just can't see it being an issue. To me, it's always the carrot. The stick is, is the thing that we have government. Yeah. Yeah, I agree prevent with you. from from taking place. But, yeah. Well, I don't know how you can say you agree because you you don't in so many other respects in economic situations and in business freedom. Well, you believe in using that. You persuade that me of things all the time. Bob. Oh boy! <laughs> but <laughs> what, what, what I, I want to know is what I want to know is what I want to know is do they smelt in a smelter? <laughs> or do they have smelt in a? Well, smelter? I don't know. I mean, I, I realize it's kind of <laughs> off the topic, but but you mentioned the trend, and I'm suddenly sitting here thinking. Do they actually smell? Why do they call it a smelter? Do they smell? I don't know. We're going to pause for... If you know the answer to that, call me, because I'd like to know. 643-1290 <laughs> is the telephone number. It's left, right, and center with Schlemmer and Metz on 1290 CJBK. Right and center with Schlemmer and Metz. Jim Chapman here. We're just talking about... Uh um, I'm not sure what we were talking We've kind of been bouncing Canada, all over the place. Whether, whether it's really a country. Well, yeah, the, off the air. We're, well, maybe we should pick that up, too. We, were, we grew out of this discussion of, of uh, tariffs and protectionism within the country, too, and Bob made the point that... Uh, well, make the point. Um, well, I've just been educated on this, really, and and really, you know, the things that, that provinces like Quebec are after is, is essentially the same pro powers and privileges they had at the turn of the century, as did all the other provinces. And uh, what has happened over the past century is that the federal government has, in effect, overridden its proper and legal jurisdiction. And this has caused a tremendous conflict between all the provinces, who are now in a in a in a permanent constitutional dilemma, I guess you could call it. And, and really, I, I don't know that the idea of Canada being a much more loosely knit confederation is that, is that it's supposed to be that scary, but that's the picture that's always painted for us. And if, if all the provinces you know, acted more as independent nations under this confederation, would we be any better or worse off? No, I think it would only depend on, upon the policy of the particular province you live in, I whether think, that I would be the case. You've really hit on something there that's been troubling me for a long time. And I'm try, trying to sort out this, the riddle of Canada. What is this all about? If you look at the, the federal government's complaint about some of the powers that the provinces want to want and that they're fighting for. Quebec foremost among them because there are certain other cultural differences that perhaps define their problem a little more clearly. But, but as you say, Bob, the other provinces, would, they'd all like the things that Quebec wants too. Um, the, the, the argument, the rationale that's been put forward by the federal government for as long as I can remember has been implicitly that if we do not have national standards that are, that are maintained and enforced by the federal government, that somehow the people of Canada will suffer. Well, that begs the question of what are the governments in the individual provinces doing? Why would they want to inflict less than 
acceptable standards of health care or education, for example, on their, on their constituents. Wh who would elect such a government? Who would elect a government that would say, well, you know, you, you know we're not going to have health care as good as they have in that other province. We're not going to have education as good as that in the other province. Because, you know, we don't have to. The feds can't force us to. So we're not going to. It, you know, it seems, it seems to me it's, it's, a very, it's a very questionable logic there. The feds are saying, if we're not here to protect you individual Canadians, your provincial governments are going to put it to you, folks. Meanwhile, we're sitting here in the province going, looking around saying, well, who's really, who's putting it to us more, the provincial government or the federal government? And the answer, I think if you look, do your homework, it's the federal government who's doing it. Oh, absolutely. And, and there's a mixed message coming here, too. You know, one of the reasons that, that the provinces all got together to form this federation was, well, they created one of the first government-created monopolies, the railway, to connect the, the two coasts. This, this is, you would think, an instrument that one uses to facilitate trade <laughs> so that you can get goods back and forth from from one province to the other and then, then you can call yourself a country because it's easy to do and it's easy to facilitate and yet all along this railway track we want to put barriers all over the place mm -hmm. usually the barrier means a tax a tariff a restriction on a on a person crossing that particular border which to me is if you're a Canadian and you don't have the same rights in Quebec as you have in Ontario you're in another country mm -hmm. and whatever you can say about the word Canadian it mm -hmm. does not matter mm -hmm. um, it you know it disturbs me greatly that Quebec can operate under the Napoleonic Code which is counter to all common mm -hmm. law principles mm -hmm. uh, why that is even tolerated and you can't do it in a tight-knit federation you have to almost leave Quebec loose if that's the code they want to operate mm -hmm. under, because it's going to pollute the rest of our, the way we do things. Mm -hmm. And it's not a system of government that I would support. Not Napoleon, you just never, you, it's funny, around here we think of him as being a bad guy. I was at the uh, <laughs> Supreme Court building in the United States, and uh, in the Supreme Court, uh, the, the main chamber and around the top of it, they've got all the great lawmakers up there, Hammurabi and all these guys, and there's Napoleon right up there. Well, Americans love well, the guy. Even, <laughs> I, even I often quote Napoleon. I've mm -hmm. published many of his quotes. He said a lot of very true things. But when we, when we refer to the Napoleonic Code, we're talking about um, what is commonly called the top-down government, where the assumption is that you don't have natural and inalienable rights. These rights are given to you by the government under which you live you know came from the old idea that the, that the king was basically the equivalent of god mm, yeah. and uh why that concept and also it, it also presumes guilt before innocence mm -hmm. um uh, to me these are so so fundamental in terms of how different they are from the, the whole british common law system where you are presumed innocent until proven guilty where you are uh you have inalienable rights that got no government has the right mm -hmm. to take from you um, that's just alien to the Napoleonic Code, and it's got nothing to do with Napoleon himself, although he obviously operated under such a system once well, he became emperor. There's, <laughs> a, uh, there's another question that, that I struggle with, and I get your thoughts on it. Same, same, same idea. People in Ontario, for example, who go to Florida uh, in the wintertime, or who go as I did to Cuba this year, or go wherever you go to the mm -hmm. country, uh, we think nothing of buying health care insurance to ensure Out of that country. Yeah, yeah to ensure that that we will have the level of health care that we desire wherever we go in canada we've created the government maybe it's not the government maybe the people believe this i don't know but there's this sense in canada that we shouldn't have to do that that with, even though we're going to travel what 2500 3000 miles to vancouver you know a, a sixth of the way around the globe um, that we should still be able to automatically expect exactly the same kind of health care with no fuss no muss and no paperwork and if you look at that's one of the that's one of the federal government's primary 
reasons for for fighting for this universality is that so you bob can go to st john's tomorrow and get sick in st john's i can go to bc get sick in bc and we'll both get the same level of care as we got in ontario in theory in theory um is that, is that the, the irony is the only the only instrument i know that can offer you that kind of protection is a private insurance plan you, you buy a private plan that will insure you no matter where you are in the world but will only insure you for certain do dollar values mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if 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 you're in a you know arabian country or something and they don't have the medical facilities available or they're too expensive mm -hmm. or they got to fly you somewhere there may be things that will not be covered by that insurance just as would be the case with, my, a, with any other my insurance, point isn't isn't so whether it should be public or private my point is it seems to me a, a rather specious argument to say that that you know for some for some reason of national de uh, national determination we're going to ensure that you can do this from st john's to british columbia and yet the average canadian thinks nothing of not doing that i'm going out of the country i'll pick up my blue cross you understand what I'm saying? Like, we have no resistance to that at all. Snowbirds go south for six months, I get the Blue Cross, I get whatever I get, I'm gone. Yeah, because your premium for a short period of time is a lot less than it would be if you were buying a permanent plan that has to insure you right into old age. But do we need, well, I guess the point I'm trying to make is the government keeps telling us how important this is to us, and yet in practice to many Canadians it's not important at all. I'm not likely to go to British Columbia tomorrow. I'm not likely to go well, to St. Well, what's John's important to the government is that it's in the middle of the cash flow, and that's <laughs> the whole issue here, Jim. There, there, Health care is not an issue with government. Taxes and money and controlling systems is. That's what governments do. But I, I mean, you know, it's I, their nature. One of the things that occurred to me as we're talking about uh, Bouchard and, uh, and the protectionism and so on is that Ontario, in many ways, since the start, has been the engine of, of Canada, and, and also the, the impetus for creating a country came as much or, out of, or more out of Ontario than anywhere else, and, and Ontario has done really well at a confederation. It's it's prospered mm -hmm. throughout. Uh, we talked about, uh, I mentioned at the break, about how uh, I remember reading about tariffs and how the whole idea about tariffs against the United States originally was that uh, we wanted to foster uh, the farm equipment, the Massey-Harris in, in Ontario, to force farmers out west uh, to buy Massey Harris instead of McCormick from uh, Chicago and and yet you know we in Ontario sit back and say well you know why do we have to pay transfers why do we have to subsidize health care at one end of the, of the country and all the rest of it and it's like well I would say it's because we decide we want a country and that's the cost of doing business and the fact is that some parts of, of, of the world are going to be less prosperous than other parts like all the time and if we want them to come to our party we have to make it worth their while mm -hmm. I, I don't know. You think that that's what's make, keeping the country unified? I'd say that's what's destroying the country. Each, each province wants its own control over its own health care system, which is very understandable since it's, it's saddled with the responsibility. Legally, the federal government is not allowed to be in the health care business. Okay? That's not in their charter. They're not allowed to do that. What they do is they promise the provinces or make it a stipulation that the transfer funds that they get from the federal government are contingent on whatever health care plans those provinces operate. It's a very subversive way mm -hmm. of forcing the provinces through their own greed, because they think they're going to get money coming from somewhere else that didn't come out of their pockets in the first place, uh, to comply with what the federal government wants them to do, even though the federal government can't literally legally provide health care for Canadians. Well, That's that, not allowed. Doesn't that, doesn't that beg the question, then, who are the, who are the real Canadians? Who are the people with the real interest in this country? the citizens of British Columbia, Alberta, and Ontario, because they're the ones who are paying for it. If they said to Ottawa, we're, we're not sending you that money in the first place anymore. We're not remitting that money to you. We're not remitting our share of these transfer payments. You can whistle for it, pal. Ottawa would be up, or up the Rideau River without a paddle. Well, they just stopped collecting those payments. That's all. I don't think it would be the end of the country. And the, and the provinces that think they're getting a big deal from getting transfer payments from the other provinces might soon discover 
hey, we got a whole potential here that we never tapped into because they were keeping us comfortable. You may very well be right. We're going to pause for a second. We come back uh, to wrap up this edition of Left, Right, and Center with Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz. This is Left, Right, and Center on Talk of the Town with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. Kind of uh, a bit of a wide-ranging discussion today grew out of our, our talks about uh, the problems at the border between Quebec and Ontario and the, uh, the uh, construction workers who are concerned there, and it's kind of drawn in, uh, grown into a discussion of Canada, which I would like to pick up on, a, on, a, on another show, too, guys, if you don't mind. I'd like to maybe pursue this at some at more length, because there are a couple of areas that I think we could go to, and I'd very much appreciate your comments on. But I want to uh, perhaps leave this one thought with you two fellows and see what you think. And I said this off the air, folks, that I at one time was a committed, rabid federalist at all costs. Keep this country together at all costs. I no longer believe that. Uh, I, I very strongly believe we need to keep the country together, but not at whatever price the federal government sets. And I have a real problem, a growing problem with this idea of transfer payments. And Bob said earlier that it doesn't, doesn't really create a level pl playing field, by, um, which is the theory that we're, we take from the people who have and give to the people who don't have. That's right. The Karl Marx, wasn't it? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's actually who did come up yeah, with yeah. that idea. Uh -huh. but, but, you know, I think if Canada wants to be called a nation and wants to be a nation, the federal government would have some very strict standards and functions that it would have to do. And one of them would be to maintain trade-free barriers mm -hmm. like within all the provinces. That would just be the starting point. You can't even think about having a country with trade barriers. The other one would be to, to make sure that no provincial government can override the fundamental freedoms and individual rights of its citizens. I, if, if the federal government is anything, it is the ultimate police of our other governments. And if that, if it just stuck to that function, I think we have a much better country. And the other, and the provinces would would have a heck of a lot of leeway in terms of what they can do. But uh, as long as we have a, a country that can still actually put barriers up and prevent people from one province working in another or trading or buying goods or getting beer, for heaven's sakes. I mean, that's a pretty sorry excuse but for you, a nation. You know, the problem, though, Bob, is that if you, rem and, and the feds will say this, if you restricted the power of the federal government and granted more powers to the provinces or, or gave back more powers, that one of the first things the provinces are going to do is put up their own trade barriers. Not if they all agreed that they wouldn't, because then they would be passing on the authority to the federal government to police that. That's the, the issue is not power. The issue is the apportionment and division of authority. And, and to me, I don't want power concentrated anywhere. I think to live in a free society, power has to be as diffused as possible. It has to be spread out so that if you do have a serious problem somewhere, it's only going to be a small problem, not a big one that could affect the whole nation. And we actually, either we should get rid of our Senate or have an elected one as a secondary power check. I mean, there's a lot of things we could do to the structure of this country, but a lot of them are inconsistent with the history of where the country Some came from, and we uh, have to overcome that. Yeah, I think it, it might be interesting to abolish the House of Commons. <laughs> Re retain, you might get my support for retain, that, you know? retain an elected Senate, abolish the House of Commons, yeah. devolve most of the powers, except the ones you said to the provinces, and get on with the job. What's wrong with that, Jeff? Well, the thing yeah, that occurs to me, though, is you talk about uh, the provinces giving up all the power to the feds, is that there haven't been changes in laws. We haven't changed the Constitution. This has all happened by, uh, but with money, that the feds have come in and they've yeah. said, okay, we're not supposed to be in a particular area, but how would you like a couple billion dollars? Mm -hmm. The provinces said, thank you very much. When they do that, yeah. they give up control as exactly well. Exactly right. And what we've seen since uh, Cretchen was elected, he's he's got to be the biggest uh, provincial power guy there is because he's cut, what, 10 or $12 billion out of those transfer payments mm -hmm. and said, we're not in that business anymore. Well, provinces, because, because if you want to be, feel free. <laughs> well, that's, but what I mean, though, is that yeah. uh, with it, when they stop 
funding it, they also lose the power, right. and suddenly the provinces have the power again. So, you know, we're back to a decentralization, and I assume that this is ebb and flow, but to say we're not changing laws, it's all about dollars. Well, but but the laws are changing because of the that unwielding the dollars that way. To me, that's the, the the greatest manifestation of the statement. You know, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. it is is it is done through money? It is done through economic, uh, not carrots but sticks, mm -hmm. and and uh, sometimes disguised as a carrot, which a handout seems to be. You know, like oh man, the federal government's going to give us all this money. There's always well, fingers attached to that. Well, hand. And, <laughs> and there's always another purpose. There's someone controlling it. That's the ultimate yes. control. Is that's when right. you start sending aid to somebody. You're, that's 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 when you've got them. It's interesting to me that we have seen our country evolve, and Jeff's quite right to point out without any legislative change at all or none significant. We've seen it evolve into an almost imperial prime ministry, where, where the prime minister of Canada today has more effective power uh, within his country than, as I mentioned earlier, Gladstone or Disraeli or the British prime ministers at, at the height of the British Empire. They did not command the absolute ability to, to see their personal vision of legislation jammed through Parliament that John Critchin right. has. They, to they me, that's endlessly fascinating. How the heck did we ever get there? Well, it's happened by accident. It's not subject to any legislation. It's not subject of anybody's announced agenda. It just seems to have occurred because we have the system where you've got MPs and they decide to get together and have a leader, even though it's not, you know, formally written down anywhere. Yeah. It's convention, and once you do it and it's accepted and nobody protests, well, that's how you do it from then on, regardless of what the rules or law might have I said before. I suppose one argument I could make, though, is that if the, if the provinces want to compete with the feds in terms of power, what they have to do is spend more. It's the uh, federal spending that's given them the power. Well, no, it's, 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 it's true, but it's also our acqui acquiescence to federal taxation, too. We have, yet, we have yet to see a meaningful tax revolt in this country. Canadians have still not said, as the Americans have said in a number of jurisdictions, we're not going to do this anymore. Yeah, but meaningful tax revolts are merely reflected in the underground economy. Uh, that's where the revolt's taking place, and, and hmm. everyone's eyes are closed to How it. How very Canadian, yeah. eh? <laughs> well, I think it's, it's universal. If anything universal, it's that. But, I mean, it's the, the Soviet it's, Union survived like that for 50 yeah. years on a very... But it's it's our quiet it's our quiet tax revolution. Yeah. Okay, we're not we're not going to complain to the guys who are taxing us. We're just going to fiddle the books so they don't get as much from our pockets. Or, or not show up on the books anymore. Yeah. Gentlemen, thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Hope you've enjoyed this edition of Left, Right, and Center. Bob and Jeff will be back next Wednesday. Uh, tomorrow, uh, we hope to be live at the Dream of a Lifetime home. Uh, apparently, with the bell strike, there's some question that we may not be. So stay tuned, and we'll let you know. Uh, we'll, we'll be here one way or the other tomorrow. We'll be somewhere tomorrow. We've got Tim Fruin, head of pediatrics, London Health Sciences Center. Rex Harrington from the principal dancer in the National Ballet of Canada. We'll be here uh, premiering tomorrow night at the Grand Theatre. Mike Smith, uh, we're going to talk to Mike about downtown development and his potential involvement in the new market down there. Uh, Constable Ken Abel will be with us in the Children's Safety Village. Sharon Hampson on coping with cancer and a whole lot more. So please plan to join us tomorrow, won't you, for the next edition of Talk of the Town. Stay tuned today for Ask the Experts at 1230 with Bud Polhill, our automotive man. And for Jeff and uh, Bob and Ryan and Kathleen and the whole staff, it's Jim saying take care of each other. Mind how you go. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.